In the name of God, who suffers with our sufferings, who died for us, and who interprets the groans we offer as prayer. Amen. The city of Uvalde, with some 16,000 citizens, whose ancestors came mostly from Mexico or Central America, sits in flat farmland some 50 miles from the border with Mexico. It has a small downtown, and the modest businesses that line the main street are a draw from the surrounding area. If you live in Uvalde, there's a good chance you know or know of practically everyone, and many people are related. The town has a junior college and the satellite branch of a local university, and the public schools are where the young are educated. We have come to know some of the students of the fourth grade, like Javier, who was looking forward to being entered into the school's honor roll this past Tuesday. Maite, who was setting her sights on becoming a marine biologist. Jose, who would wear a pink shirt that said, tough guys wear pink. <laughs> and Jackie Caceres, who'd made her first communion just two weeks earlier and looked radiant in her white dress and crown. And their two teachers, Irma Garcia, who loved her students while she lived and was found embracing several of them as she lay lifeless on the floor. And Eva Mireles, who was remembered by the mother of a daughter with sit-down syndrome for helping her child to integrate cheerfully into a regular classroom. These two fourth grade teachers were shot to death Tuesday morning, and so were 19 of their charges. The gut wrench we felt just two weeks ago with the shooting at Topps Friendly Market, a local supermarket on the east side of Buffalo, felt sickeningly familiar when we experienced it again so soon. Cell phone images followed, jerky movies of police running towards the school or roughly pushing parents back, journalists asking questions to family members too shocked and distraught to answer them. Politicians, like the chorus in a Greek tragedy, obscenely mouthing platitudinous expressions of sadness and shocked surprise. Vigils were planned bells rung, prayers offered. And as we've also come to expect, voices from the sewer world of our society spewed our current prejudices, plastering them on the massacre at Uvalde, insinuating that the killer was trans, the parents we saw grieving were stand-in actors, and the children who'd been killed and their families were non-legal immigrants. But to all the fine words, the time-tested gestures of lament and condolence, 
and the expressions of raw virulence. Rogelio Munoz responded using words many could second. Something needs to change. But what infuriates me is I know nothing is going to change. Nobody's going to do a damned thing about it. Where we find ourselves at this point has a claustrophobic quality to it. We know the chance of changing anything with regard to gun reform, even the most creeping, incremental way, is still out of reach. And the other issue, how to protect us from those who, because of mental health issues, do terrible things, and to get them the help they need. Action on this is now difficult, if not impossible, as protections for the mentally ill have long been put in place to save them from the abuses of previous generations when people were locked away for decades in the back wards of mental hospitals for the flimsiest of reasons. Many of us have written letters to our senators, to the NRA, to anybody we think will listen, and have received polite but unsatisfactory correspondence in return from some underling writing on behalf of the people who could do something if only they would. We have marched, carried banners, shouted ourselves hoarse, attended prayer vigils, done just about anything that could make a difference. And in the end, we have to agree with what Mr. Munoz said. Nobody's going to do a damned thing about it. So what do we do? Well, if you have more letter-writing energy left in you, or if you haven't gotten around to writing to your senators for a while, then you can do that. <clears throat> and at least you have the satisfaction of having your thoughts heard by somebody. And maybe you aren't alone or done with attending prayer vigils, marches, and have some hope that those efforts might be helpful. Do those too. But many people I talk to or I overhear talking express a sense of being trapped, of being fenced in. For if I can't sway my elected officials and mental health le legislation is beyond my ability to affect it, then what can I do? When there's no action I can take, no solution I can hope for, I see that as time for me to look inward, for I know there's always work to do there. Now, it's a truism to say that our nation consists of two camps, a red and a blue one. Those in the one camp have very little, if anything, positive to say about those in the other. It's really about the simplest form of black and white thinking there is. And I'm sure those fourth grade kids knew better than to think so simplistically. Are those I don't agree with really so stygianly stupid, so hopelessly prejudiced? Do they not also bleed like the poor merchant of Venice? 
Could there just possibly be in me such a pit of snarling scorn for those who don't see things as my enlightened self, my moi, sees them? And can I only be right by annihilating those on the other side? I have to acknowledge a sense of pride in these attitudes of mine, and I know nobody's ever been reached in conversation or won over by someone whose pride holds him captive. And pride, I hardly need to remind myself, is one of the deadly sins. And when I look deeper into the well of my being, I discover something else that keeps me locked in myself. Am I really interested in those who aren't like me in the way I consider myself to be? Don't I like reading about those whose life experiences are different from mine? Brown-skinned people, poor people, the two Afghan women at the store. Then in meeting and getting to know them? What is it that I fear from making their acquaintance? Well, the discovery, mind-shattering, light bringing awareness that, yes, they're different from me, but at the same time, they're not. And what makes them different from me, were I to have the courage to get to know them well enough, would end up making me a fuller, more alive, a richer person than I am than when I'm stuck within the narrow circle of my whiteness, my privilege, my accustomed way of living, my boring narrow-mindedness. There is, after all, a fatal danger in being so narrow in one's sympathies, in one's worldview, one's lack of knowledge of people with other life experiences. It begins with ignorance, and then insinuatingly it evolves into prejudice, and then it finally can bloom into full-blown disdain and detestation. I remember when I lived in Vienna, one of the local papers did a survey. This was back in the 1970s, when Austrians were, after 30 years, mind you, just beginning to address their shameful history of anti-Semitism. And the paper asked a number of questions of their readership, of which two stood, up, stood out for me. How many Jews do you know? At that time, there were some 3,000 Jews in a city of nearly a million people. And then later on in the questionnaire, you were asked, would you have a Jew for a friend? The questionnaire expressed the question more subtly than that, but I forget now its exact wording. And the conclusion was that those who knew the fewest Jews were most likely not to want to befriend a Jew. I've never forgotten that. Ignorance of other people and prejudice go hand in hand. So when I take a close look at how my life is, and I keep those I don't know at arm's length, I set myself up for the very prejudice that I'd be horrified to admit I could ever have. You don't know about Jews by reading books about them. You don't know about African Americans by reading books about them, even good books. You get to know others well by knowing them. 
Now, you may think that I've gone off track with my remarks now. What can this possibly have to do with gun reform or the slaughter of the innocents at Uvalde or the innocent shoppers at Topps Friendly in Buffalo? But with myself, at least, the more I keep to myself and refuse to acknowledge the humanity of those who think differently from me and are of a different nationality or race, the more suspicious I'm likely to be of them and the more likely I am to fear them. And if I were a gun-buying sort of person, the more likely I'd be to buy myself a gun or three or four. For you need guns for every eventuality, and besides those others, they have guns and would use them on you, wouldn't they? Now there's a vicious circle, if ever there were one. I want to mention another attitude that bears on what I'm talking about. I'm thinking about our rapacious greediness as a people, our willingness to do just about anything to grab for ourselves more money, more power, more prestige. And to gain these tinsel transitory things, we gladly push aside anyone who dares to get in our way, who questions our right to take what we want who exposes the enormity of our self-centeredness, even if members of a class of kids in small Uvalde are the casualty. Such behavior cheapens our society, makes it rough and rude, makes it heartless. Those who are disadvantaged, thanks to social arrangements decades old and legal restraints that ensure their poverty, or who try to live out their lives unnoticed and in a quiet, humble way, become the targets of grasping, rapacious, bullying system that allows and even rewards those who have the power to perpetuate such behavior and get away with it. Is there any surprise that all this produces a simmering, all-consuming resentment and anger? No one is willing to think that the death of their child is a satisfactory trade-off for those who'd fatten their wallets with money from special interest groups like the NRA. The anger this callousness creates festers internally, and who knows when it'll produce its terrible fruit. As William Blake reminds us, I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath, my wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not, my wrath did grow. And do we need reminding that anger, like pride, is also a deadly sin? But I want to return to those who've been shot at Beth Buffalo, in Uvalde, in countless places, year after year. And as we remember these events, let us not forget those whose private despair seemed to leave them no choice but to end their lives with a gunshot. Or those who, under the influence of drugs or alcohol or mindless rage, or a sense of pride that's been questioned, do appalling deeds. 
those whose random gunshots have killed little children watching TV or sitting on the shoulders of their granddads, or the man who shot another man and killed him because he didn't like the throw of dice his playing partner had made. And what of someone like Salvador Ramos? Is it enough simply to say that he is a monster, an evil being, the very personification of evil? And imagine that that's an adequate explanation for the deaths of those children. For this young man had been tormented by twisted thoughts that gave him no rest, a low sense of his own worth, made all the worse by the merciless bullying of those who mocked his lisp, his stutter, and his chaotic home life. Even with people like Salvador Ramos, we're not allowed to turn our backs. For if we turn our eyes, we'll never learn why such young men do horrifying things. And by knowing this, perhaps we can help prevent future catastrophe. But I must look upwards. I must look outwards, outside of myself, beyond this world in which I live now. I'm helped in this by remembering that the ascension of Christ, which we celebrate at this time, it's these 10 days between now and Pentecost, Christ's return to God, to take to God all the pain and the suffering his life was filled with. May those children with their devoted teachers, be lifted up with him. May their terror, their anxious hope that rescue would come, their despair at seeing their cousins, their friends, their schoolmates lying dead beside them, may all that be wiped away by God as tears are wiped away when they are brought into God's heavenly presence. And be with the children who survived, O Lord. Give them sleep without nightmare. And let them go forward able to be unburdened with guilt that they survived and their friends and family didn't. Take the grief of the parents and families and turn it into a resolve to help other families be spared the suffering they feel. May those who reflect on the shootings at Topps Market in Buffalo not feel as Deacon Glenda does, that they are going about with a target on their back. And God, we pray you, take away from us all our pride, our sense that we are right and the others are wrong, our terrible self-centeredness that makes us glad to become rich, at the cost of the lives of little children. O oh God, may the words of your scripture come true in our time and for us. Let light spring up for those who are righteous. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Give us, Jesus, the love that you have with God and that God has for you. Amen.